You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Welcome. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I want to tell you it's really wonderful to have you with us on a, a challenging day, no doubt, um, but thanks for being here. Thanks for coming to look to the Lord um, with brothers and sisters today. Throughout this series, I have quoted various song lyrics. I've made a joke that I might just put together a playlist for you that would be all the songs quoted in the Ecclesiastes series. Now, I'm not talking about church songs or Christian songs. I've been quoting songs just by regular artists, um, just songs of the world, not songs of the church, because so often artists uh, have the ability to um, look and see and diagnose. They often don't have solutions, but they often have diagnoses. And uh, so when it came to this passage, I realized that the big idea of this passage is found in a song by Regina Spector. She's a singer-songwriter, and she wrote a song called Laughing With, which makes this simple point, which is the point of today's text, that people take God far more seriously in times of tragedy than they take God in times of leisure, times of ease, and times of celebration. I know nothing about her faith. I don't assume she's a woman of faith, but I don't know. Um, But this is what she writes. No one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from the party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope they're mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cops knock on the door and they say, we've got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's a famine, fire, or a flood. But God could be funny at a cocktail party while listening to a good God-themed joke. Her point's a sober one, isn't it? That at a party, many would mock the very idea of God, but when tragedy enters their life, it's a different story. We see that in the first few verses of this passage, but the first few verses set the tone for everything that follows. They're connected. So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14, God's perfect word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For this is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. Well, the section is a series of proverbs or wise sayings. They just are kind of bulleted sayings. At first, it's hard to see how they all fit together. I think once we see what he's saying at the beginning, then we'll see logically how what follows comes. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a section where he's comparing things. He's saying, this is better than that. It's a common uh, tool in wisdom literature. This is better than that. And he begins by making the par- comparison that a good name, verse 1, is better than precious ointment. Uh, precious ointment, he's talking about fragrant oils. They, they were of great value in biblical times. Um, And and he's saying that as costly as a fragrance might be, it's still only external. In other words, anybody can splash on an expensive fragrance and smell good. But a name, your name is something else. Your name reflects who you are. Your name reflects your character. And being known as a person who reflects Christ is more than anything external. Being a person who reflects the life of Jesus to others matters more than anything you own, anything you possess, anything you've accomplished. So the passage is going to start by showing us this importance of living a life that reflects God, that is, reflects godly character, that establishes a good name among others because God is in your life. It's, it's to live wisely so that we have a good name, and represent the gospel faithfully. And to do that, to do that, to get our attention and tell us how to do that, he's going to focus on death. And this is, this is the first idea. I really only have two points today. This is the first one, is that he says death is the ultimate teacher. It's the ultimate instructor. He says that death instructs us about something that is so important. He, he starts with this statement, verse, uh, the, uh, the second part of verse 1, the day of death uh, is better than the day of birth. Now, to understand what he means by that, we've got to read the next verse, uh, verse 2 and see. Robert, can you track with me on this? Because I'm, I'm realizing I'm going to be going back and forth. Thanks for your flexibility there. 
So he says the day of death is better than the day of birth, but to understand that, we've got to look at verse 2. What's he saying? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. So he's not saying your, day, your death is better than your birth, because verse 2 says he's talking to the living. He's addressing living people, and he's addressing our observation of someone else's birth and someone else's death. And that's an important thing to understand what he's saying. He's, he's speaking to the living, and he's saying when someone else you know dies, and you gather in the house of mourning, he says, better to go, verse 2, to the house of mourning, and you go to the house of mourning, what's that? Well, to translate it, that's being in the home of someone who's lost someone. It's the being with the family of the deceased. It's being in a funeral home. It's being at a memorial service. It's wherever you're gathering with those who are in mourning. He, he says, when you gather in the house of mourning, here's what you're going to realize, verse 2, that this is the end of all mankind. He said, you're going to realize that, that when someone dies, that you know, that when you go, he's talking about physically, to the house of mourning, you wouldn't be invited to the house of mourning probably if you don't know the person. But when you're invited and you attend the house of mourning, you will realize this is the end. And he says, the wise will lay it to heart. In other words, when someone we know dies, we are exposed to the brutal reality, the brutal fact that this is my lot as well. And if we take it to heart, he says, we will gain wisdom. But here's what the house of mourning teaches. It teaches that everyone dies. No one escapes this. And the sooner we rise and take this to heart, the wiser we will be and the quicker we'll be able to trust God and live a life of good character that will reflect him to others. Read verse 4. He says kind of the same thing. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but here the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. If I can just be very real with the text today, okay? He's actually saying it's better to go to a funeral than a party. He's saying it's better to go to a funeral with a party, and here's why. Because a funeral offers life-changing wisdom. You can encounter God in a way there is a sobriety and a weight upon your soul about the eternality of God and your own finite nature that you can't get at a party. It's better to go to a funeral than a party, he says, if you want to be wise, if you want to be equipped for godly living. Now again, I, I mentioned it's ironic that I'm going to finish this sermon in a few minutes and we're going to go out and celebrate in the lawn this afternoon. I, I want to say when he said it's better to be at a funeral than the house of feasting, that the Bible is not a, against feasting. The Bible is not against parties. Ecclesiastes has been saying the whole book that the gift of God is to live a life where you experience the joy of eating, the joy of drinking, joy in your work. The whole book is ultimately about considering the end of your life and the judgment of God. That's how the book ends. Look and consider the end of your life and the judgment of God and then live in a way that you live a life for the glory of God that experiences joy. God is into joyful living and that's what this book is about. And in fact, Jesus 
lived his life many times. Some people say if you read the Gospels, it's just Jesus going from meal to meal, punctuated by all this other activity. Jesus went to parties. Jesus' first miracle was bringing alcohol at a wedding, uh, uh, a wedding service uh, party uh, when they had run out, and he turned water into wine. So God is not against pardon. The point is don't have a good time. The point is not don't have a good time. He's specifically speaking about wisdom. And he says when it comes to wisdom, that there's more to be gained in the house of mourning because in the house of mourning, you come face to face with the brevity of life. And if you take it to heart, you'll gain wisdom. Here's what he's saying. Each funeral anticipates our own. Each funeral anticipates our own. It calls us to consider our own death and ask these kinds of questions. What kind of person should I be? What should I be living for, knowing that my days are numbered? I mean, at a funeral, you ask questions like, what really matters? And what am I doing with my life? You don't ask that at a party very often. You don't evaluate your life. At a funeral, you might ask, as someone is being remembered and honored, you might ask, what will the testimony about my life be? And that's a question of wisdom. Do I reflect the Lord? Is anybody impacted by my following Jesus? That's a funeral question, not a party question. And that's why he's making the comparison. Gary Thomas, the author, wrote this. This is what Thomas said. Remembrance of death acts like a filter, helping us to hold on to the essential and let go of the trivial. In other words, when you remember your own death, is coming. When you think about your own frailty, your own finite nature, when you remember death, it acts like a filter and it weeds out all the trivial stuff. It, it, sort, of, it sort of gives you clarity on what, do, what am I living for and, and what do I care about and what should I be focusing on and what am I doing with my time and all of these kinds of questions. You ask those questions in the house of mourning. I'll give you an example. I remember when my mom died. She's the closest person in my life that has ever died. And because her death was very sudden and completely unexpected, the sorrow in the house of mourning was acute because no one had any time to prepare their hearts. No one knew this was coming. Sometimes there could be a situation where it's almost a relief that the person's no longer suffering and they're with Christ if, uh, if for a believer. But this was not the situation. She died very suddenly, unexpected. So the acute, the suffering was acute. And I remember being at the visitation, literally the house of mourning, or actually the house of mourning, the night before she was buried. Conversation is very different in the house of mourning. No one's talking about the weather. No one's talking about their favorite sports team. No one's pulling out their phone and yelling, dude, have you seen this TikTok? No one's doing that in the house of mourning. People are very aware of the brevity of life and the reality of life. And so people are coming up to me in tears. They are bearing their soul. They're communicating their hearts. 
stuff that they're just not normally saying, weeping all the time. Somebody coming to me weeping. I know Jesus because of your mom. Sharing the most precious thing in her soul with me. Somebody came to me and said, I never would be in a church, never went to church until your mom invited me as an elementary school kid to come along, ride along with your family. And I met Jesus, and I'm still serving him all these years later. That's the stuff that really mattered. I mean, people are acting differently in this kind. People are, a few people are just like ugly crying and not caring what anybody thinks what they look like. It doesn't matter what you look like in the house of mourning. It doesn't matter. People you might not normally hug, I'm hugging them. And it's not a Christian side hug. It's a deep embrace, and they're not letting go. Nobody hugs like that normally that you're not married to. Nobody hugs like that. But they're hugging that way. Why? Because death acts like a filter, and it filters out what really matters and what's trivial and what things I should be saying that I never get around to saying. And you know, in the house of mourning, I remember that, that evening, nobody's too busy. Nobody's in a hurry. Nobody's worried about their schedule. We're hanging out and talking and at times laughing over stories and weeping. The stuff of life that really matters no one, no one's sitting in the corner and scrolling on their phones. It'd almost be inappropriate, disrespectful. Who's got time for that? That's not what we're here for. We're here remembering what really matters. People are thinking deeply, deeply. People are feeling strongly. People are caring lovingly. And I want to tell you this, the heart of the wise soaks up those lessons. The heart of the wise says, verse 2, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The wise person is saying, whoa, this is different. This atmosphere is different. This vibe is different. This is so, I'm almost uncomfortable with sobriety and the emotion and the, the, con, the frank conversation. It's not, it's like, I'm not used to this. But the wise will say, this is reality. And the wise will take it to heart. And the wise will walk out of there and live a different life by the grace of God, for the glory of God. And that's why it's better to be there than at a party. On the other hand, the heart of fools, well, what does it say? Verse 2, the heart of fools, I'm sorry, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The word mirth means amusement. Laughter. The NIV translates it pleasure. The fool's heart is in the house of pleasure. This is the kind of partying and levity that, that seeks to silence reality. It's, it's, it's foolish. It's opposed to wisdom because it seeks to, it's a diversion from the truth. The house of mourning is the truth hits you in the face. The house of mirth, the house of amusement, the house of party, you're trying to silence that voice that says you one day, perhaps soon, will die and stand before God. The party environment seeks to, to quell, to, to squelch your conscience, not enliven your conscience. It, it, it often involves um, drinking until you lose your perception of reality 
and enter another reality. It's about, it's about diverting our hearts from reality. That's why it's foolish. The fool, Bible says that the fool uh, uh, says in his heart, there is no God. So the person that parties foolishly is the person that's living as if there's no God to whom I will ever give an account. That's foolish, he says. And the fool loves that kind of environment because it provides relief. It provides a moment of relief from the reality of life. Listen, we, we provide countless diversions in this culture. Man, we got more, I believe this, we've got more diversions. The heart of men and women never changes. But we've got more diversions in this culture than any culture that has ever existed. And so because of the diversions and our propensity to move towards them, we don't get wisdom. Psalm 90.12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But a life filled, perhaps controlled, by escapism, you never count your days. And so you die a fool apart from God. We don't want to talk about death. We hide death. I, do you know, like, you could see this up in the Northeast, that in the old days, churches had cemeteries in front of them. Think about this metaphor. Think about this. That, this is actually true, but think about this as a metaphor. When you walked out of church, you read this passage, you walked out of church that Sunday morning, you're walking right by there. There's where Grandpa lies. There's our old pastor. There's my best friend who's now with Jesus. There's my sister. You saw that every day. Here's the comparison. You walk out of here, you walk to a movie theater. One says, hits you in the face and says, reality. The other says, escape from reality. Now, I like a good film. I'm not, I'm not criticizing films. But I'm just saying, we're crazy if we don't think that films are often <laughs> used to escape reality. The less we think of death, the more foolish will we become. Most of us could not even identify the location of a cemetery in Frisco. And if you can, I bet you can't identify two. Oh, you, I can take you to 10 nail salons. I can take you to 30 donut shops. I can take you to more restaurants than you could eat at in a lifetime. But a place that will bring you face to face with the, the brevity of your life, it's hidden away. Nobody even knows where they are. That's the world we live in. And it, it's the design of foolishness because that's what we want. We want to hide ourselves from death. Verses 5 and 6 don't talk about death, but it's very similar. Very similar. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, here's how it relates to the previous section. Just as mourning feels like adversity, but it brings wisdom, so does correction, a rebuke, so does correction feel like adversity, but it brings wisdom as well. 
it brings wisdom as well. Just like a party is more fun than a funeral, so is listening to music more fun than listening to a rebuke. That's what he's saying. We would rather escape wisdom from a rebuke, and we would rather sing the song of fools, is what he says. The song of fools brings no benefit. It takes you away, and I am for movies, films. If you go to the church here, you know this. I mean, I quoted music to begin with that has nothing to do with God, uh, Christian stuff, right? So I'm, I'm for that, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I'm talking about living a life of diversion, look, looking, looking for escape rather than dealing with reality. That's what I'm trying to talk about. And the song of fools brings no benefit. But constructive criticism from a wise person, that'll change your life. The house of partying brings no benefit. The house of mourning, that'll change your life. That's what he's talking about. He uses this really powerful simile here. It's, it's, it's an it's a, it's a engaging picture. He says, verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, this also is vanity. It's a cooking illustration. He says that if you're going to make a fire under your pot to cook and you're going to use thorn bushes, what do you get? Well, you're going to get noise. You're going to get crackling and you're going to get popping and it's going to burn out very fast and it's not going to cook your meal. So is the laughter of fools. In a moment, yes, it's fun. It's enjoyable. But you know what? It burns out very fast and it is vanity, emptiness. It is short-lived is what he says. Verse 5, better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 5 makes a claim on our lives. And this is what I think it asks us. Are you building meaningful friendships with people who will tell you the truth? Or are you investing your time in meaningless diversions that numb you to the reality life is short? Which are we doing? Are we building meaningful relationships where someone will tell us the truth, or are we investing in meaningless diversions to shield ourselves, numb ourselves, medicate ourselves from coming face to face with the truth that life is short? Laughter of fools, the song of fools, the house of pleasure, none of these lead us to evaluating our lives, but the house of mourning does. And I know that when we talk about a section of scripture like this, some of it's in the room, well, all of us are stunned by yesterday and carrying grief, but some of us are carrying a different kind of grief because someone close to you has recently died. That's much more, that's a personal grief. And I want to encourage you if you're in the midst of grieving or mourning or, or verse 5, maybe you're living in the, with a stinging rebuke from someone, but I want to encourage you if that is you today. And I don't mean to be flippant at all. I don't mean to pass beyond the suffering and not lament and just go to some kind of solution or something like that. I, I do not want to do that to be Job's counselors or something. But, but I would say this, that it is in seasons of mourning, in the house of mourning, that God imparts to us the greatest wisdom in our lives. And Ecclesiastes will show us that if you gain wisdom, you will experience joy. So there may be weeping for a day, as we read earlier, but joy comes in the morning. And you, in, in the morning is where God meets us and changes us. I love that, I can't quote it exactly, but part of a quote by C.S. Lewis 
Uh, he said that God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. God speaks. Our pain is a megaphone for God to speak truth to us. So as painful as it is, and I'm sorry, I hope, I hope the Lord transitions you out of a season of mourning into a season of joy. I'm so sorry for what you are enduring. But I, I want you to know that God will speak and will change us through these kinds of times. The next verses that don't seem very connected, I think they're just about applying death's instruction. So he said death is the great instructor. I think this is just about applying what we've learned. So in other words, what does a life of wisdom look like? What does it look like? Once you've been in the house of mourning and you come out to live your life, what kind of person are you going to be like? What's the good name going to be like? And he just kind of ticks off these various things. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. A bribe corrupts the heart. He, he's saying that greed isn't worth it. I mean, how do you apply this? Well, I think you apply it this way. Go to a funeral and ask yourself at the funeral, at the end of my life, will I regret compromising my financial integrity? I think when you think about the end of your life and the brevity of your life, ask, is it worth it for a little more money to compromise my integrity? That's what he's asking. Verse 8 Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience is better than pride. Pride demands that things go in my time and in my way, and patience waits on the Lord. That's the difference. Pride says, it's my agenda. Why aren't things happening here? Everything from, why isn't this cleaned up the way I said it should be, to, uh, why, why isn't my life going the way it says I should? And, and and patience is a virtue of the Lord because it says the Lord is in control and allows his sovereignty to govern our response. Go to a funeral and ask yourself, well, I want others to remember me as a person who treated them with patience because I trusted the Lord. That's what he's saying. At the end of your life, would you have liked to have been a person who by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's work was a person of patience who could wait on the Lord rather than pressuring those around us. Verse 9, do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Like impatience, anger is the response of not getting my way. I didn't get my way, and so I'm going to blow up, or I'm going to clam up and retreat, whatever it is, but it didn't go my way. Go to a funeral and ask, what do my spouse and my kids experience from me? That's wisdom, thinking I'm asking now rather than getting to the end of my life with regret. I'm asking now. Go to a funeral and ask, is it worth it to be an angry person? Did anyone ever stand up in a eulogy and say, what affected me most for the good was that he had a terrible temper, and I'm thanking God for it. No one ever said that. No one ever said that. Go to a funeral and say, how does God treat me? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, by your Holy Spirit, make me slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is the danger of nostalgia. And at some point, I'm going to preach a whole message on nostalgia, probably from this passage, that verse. Go to a funeral 
and you will realize that you, your days are limited and they are passing quickly. And the truth is God is with you just as much today as he was in the past. If you go to a funeral and you take the wisdom in of the house of mourning, it will say to you, stop living in the past. What does God want from my life today? Because living in the past is a barrier to faithful service in the present. And the house of mourning will teach that. It'll help us die to the pining of the good old days, which is usually not accurate anyway, and ask, all I have is today. Lord, how can I be faithful to you where you've placed me today? Listen to death's instruction in the house of mourning. Receive God's wisdom, verse 11. He says it's an advantage, verse 12. He says it's protection, wisdom is protection. He concludes by saying that, in essence, God is sovereign over everything. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. When we go to the house of mourning, we learn that God is sovereign over birth. I had nothing to do with my birth. And before I was born, the Bible says every one of my days were written in his book. The house of mourning teaches you God is sovereign. The house of pleasure and partying and escape teaches you, I'm going to live forever. There's no, let's, let's party like there's no tomorrow. If you're prospering today, enjoy the good gifts of God and use them to glorify him and serve others. And if you're suffering today, realize that God makes the day of adversity just like he makes the day of prosperity. And if this text says anything, it says God is with you in your adversity. I mean, he tells, you, he tells us to go to the house of mourning, that it's better to be there. You better know that God is with the brokenhearted, that God is with the weeping, that God is with the hurting, that God is the one who is crushed under the effects of the fall, and, and we don't think that. We think God's with me in the prosperity. God has blessed me, and we think in the adversity, God is absent, but God is with us in the adversity, and this may not be totally theologically accurate, but I would say God is more with us in the adversity. I understand the doctrine of omnipresence. I get that, so I get it, but there's a sense in which God is more with us in adversity, near to the brokenhearted, tenderly instructing us with care and patience, shaping us, forming us, growing us in the house of pain is what our God does. He's more present teaching us and helping us in those times. We think, he's with me in the prosperity. Look what God has done, but not the adversity. And the proof of this is that God took the worst adversity and has brought the greatest good from it. Read this quote. Look at this quote from Sean O'Donnell from Ecclesiastes. He says, trust in the Lord's sovereign purposes, knowing that he once used the worst day in human history, the day of Christ's crucifixion, to bring hope and happiness to the world forever. God took the most grievous adversity imaginable 
And he used that to teach us the greatest truth imaginable. At the cross, God speaks to us. Yes, God speaks to us uh, when a loved one passes, but death's greatest instruction, death's most powerful lesson, death's most clear uh, reality strikes us when we look at the cross. Because what do we learn there? We learn there that our sins are so grievous, worse than we ever could have imagined, so bad that we could never atone ourselves, that God had to become a man and substitute himself, the one who had done nothing wrong, substituted himself for us, for our many sins. The cross tells us our sins are far worse than any of us can imagine. But the cross also tells us that God loves us far more than any of us could ever dream. That his love defies description. That the God who substituted himself for us did it because of his love for us. He did it to prove that he entered into our world and he enters into our sorrows and our griefs and owns them, takes them on himself so that we can be forgiven, so that we could receive eternal life, so that we could know that he is always with us. He not only died, but Jesus also rose from the grave to demonstrate his power over death, his power over sin. And, and his coming to be with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's raised and he pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost so that God would not just forgive and be at a distance, but he would actually dwell inside of our very lives. He would come that near to sinful people that he would dwell in us because of his love and he would dwell in us and give us, by the Spirit's power, the ability to hear and understand and receive wisdom. Now we can go to the house of mourning and we can, we can receive his wisdom and we have the power to repent and to change. He calls us to repent. He calls us to lean on him and he's given us the power to do that by the Holy Spirit. He's making us people. He is making us people who live each day increasingly dependent upon him encountering him, communing with him, living with our own end in view. This is the work of the Spirit. If you see your end in view and you repent and change by his grace, that is the mercy of God to you. And we not only look with our end in view, but we look with eternity in view, that there's coming a day when there will be no more sorrows, there will be no more pains. There will be no more news flash that stuns and shocks and breaks our hearts. There's coming a day where death will utterly be cast away and defeated and life will reign through Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. And this is the wisdom we get from God by his spirit when we think soberly about life and death rather than uh, divert ourselves from truth and seek to numb the pain with meaningless diversions. I pray today that as we gather and as we respond to the Lord uh, from this text, that God might sober us, um, that God might sober us as if we were at a funeral home with a friend that's passed on, that he would teach us those lessons and that we would truly gain a heart of wisdom, not walk out to forget this moment, but embrace God's grace to us. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.